Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Well, I'd like to introduce you to our guest of the morning, uh, Chris Hutton. Chris is a deputy director of, at the Free Market Foundation. He has uh, a master of philosophy in business ethics, and he also produces a podcast for the FMF, which is, I've, listen, I've listened to a few of them, and they are clear and, uh, and erudite. And uh, Chris, welcome, and uh, tell us the name of your podcast. Uh, good morning, Sarah, and good morning to the listeners. Thank you very much for Having me on, happy Freedom Day. Um, yeah, the, so the podcast is called The Free Marketeers. Uh, that's available on the Free Market Foundation's YouTube channel. It's also available on all audio platforms where one can find podcasts. So if anyone would be interested, just search The Free Marketeers and you can find all of our episodes wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Okay, Chris, I'm going to, I'm, t- today we're going to play a little. Uh, loose and fast with issues, but I, before I get to the major issues, I have to ask you, you have a, a, a master of philosophy, uh, an MPhil, but focused on business ethics. Um, in South Africa, do we have many of those? Do you mean, do we have <laughs> many MPhil or business, in business ethics, or do we have many ethical businesses? <laughs> I, I think I mean ethical businesses. <laughs> yeah, you see, it's it's interesting sort of by what standard one measures ethical behavior. So I think for the majority of people, it might be, they might consider ethical businesses those that quote unquote give back to society. Now I think any business that provides a good or a service is already giving back to society and providing value to their customers. So in that way, I think they are ethical. I mean, one can look at, of course, the story of state capture that stands out as what happens when businesses and the state get involved with each other, then you see unethical behavior because businesses who have the necessary money sort of rig the game in their favor. So I think it matters in what context one is talking about, um, and that can sort of determine whether you consider whether business is behaving ethically or not. I suppose the the, pri- the big private sector example of, of the moment would be the Steinhoff saga. Right. Um what I wanted to, I wanted to make the comment, you, you raised the point about, you know, just doing business in itself is, 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 is a matter of ethics. Um, I, I would say that linked to that is the fact that in the current, in the climate and the desperate situation South Africa is in, with the sort of youth unemployment at 50% or more, that if you are able to provide someone with a job, um, you are doing the society a service. Well, I agree with that, and I think it should be up to each person, each individual, to work for a business that they like. It, I mean, it's often used as an example of, you know, you should be a CEO or an MD or something like that, but in whatever work you do, you can do your best and you can deliver the best that you can to your abilities, and you should be free to work for any business that you think will will further that. So if you think being a musician is the best work you can do, if you think being a janitor, you want to be the best janitor, you can be the best sports person, the best artist, you should be free to engage with people, you know, voluntarily. There shouldn't be, I guess, interference in terms of how much you should be paid, um, what under what conditions you should work. If we're if and speaking on Freedom Day. We should, if we want to honor that, 
we should consider it important that people are capable of deciding for themselves what work they want to do and on what terms. I mean, that to me is is dignity. Isn't I mean, isn't the reality the fact that, um, particularly in light of the of the huge gaps in the society uh, of achievement of education of of the benefits that uh, that the government or, or the private sector should provide that the reality is that we can't all we can't as the critical race theorists sort of like and, and the and the and the socialists which are very much the trend here and in America like to uh, like to go for is is equality of outcomes now that is surely not humanly possible, and I mean humanly in the sense that we are so different and we have had so many different experiences, advantages or disadvantages. There is, it's a chimera, it's an absolute nonsense to even consider the idea of, inequality, of equality of outcomes. Right, I think it was Thomas Sowell, uh, Dr. Thomas Sowell, who said uh, the first lesson of economics is scarcity and the first lesson of politics is to ignore the first lesson of economics. <laughs> I think that sums it up very nicely. I mean, no one can match Dr. Sowell in terms of his sort of erudite ways of analyzing economics and social matters. But I think you you, you hit on the right point. It's it's practically impossible to, to guarantee the same outcomes for everyone and also I think morally impossible because you assume maybe on an accident of birth, for example, the color of one's skin or the gender that one is born with or the religion that someone is born into, that therefore all people of that same characteristic have to behave the same and act the same and have exactly the same sort of goals that they want to achieve in life. That, to me, is deeply immoral. We can, I think we would all agree we should have equality in front of the law, which we haven't seen in South Africa where politicians and bureaucrats with the right connections can avoid the consequences of their destructive actions and private citizens, you know, have to bear the brunt of, of that. For example, when corruption happens, poorer South Africans don't have access to services, for example. Mm-hmm. But yeah, equality of outcome, at the end of the day, it's going to result in, in bad uh, effects because those in charge of government will always get to decide who wins and who loses. And inevitably, They'll sort of go for who they think should deserve something at the cost of someone else. To me, that's the fundamental um, problem with the whole idea of of a socialist or communist society, and that is the fact that it you you, you on the one hand you've got the innate nature of people to respond differently, to have different ambitions, to have different abilities, to have different desires. It it is absolutely an innate, immutable aspect of our personalities. And then on the other hand, you have a self-appointed elite who determines the equality that we will all be shoved into um, to achieve an economic result that ultimately has to collapse because it just doesn't make sense to the way we as human beings operate. Yeah, we saw this, to use a a recent example, in the U.S. last year with COVID-19, even in South Africa to a lesser extent where we have... um, the Minister Against Trade and Industry, Ibrahim Patel, <laughs> who often talks about uh, price controls and um, and um, providers such as pick and pay, quote-unquote, exploiting consumers when prices rise too much. When prices rise, that's because the demand is rising in, in society for a certain product. So it's a simple rule of economics. But when you have a central planner um, or even a bureaucrat sort of politburo kind of thing, who, who decide that this price is too high, 
you should always ask by what standard, what what formula have they used, how have they come to that conclusion? Because prices fluctuate all the time; they move up and down according to how society and people interact with each other. And you can't sit in uh, in an office in Pretoria or Bloemfontein or Cape Town and decide that prices across the country will always be the same in all contexts. Something almost, uh, I don't know, I think the word is uh, ethically criminal about the idea of subjugating people in terms of what you think as the leadership is is, is what they need. In other words, um, I think the, 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 the maxim in, 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 in communist society is that um, you shall you shall produce according to your ability and essentially consume according to your need. Now, that strikes me as potentially incredibly, incredibly unfair. I agree 100%. And you, again, when now we're in, in an election year this year, we have local government elections coming up. So inevitably, then we see the rise of promises being made by politicians of all stripes. This isn't just something that one can label, that one can throw at the governing party. I think this mm. is something of all politics nowadays around the world. It becomes a case of promising people all sorts of goodies and services. But you have to always ask the question, um, if someone says you have a right to housing or a right to health care, sort of a product or something that has to be built, you have to ask, but then do you have a right to the life of the doctor or the builder? Mm. Because they have to provide that. So then are you saying, you know, the government can dictate to a certain industry that they have to work under certain conditions and produce X number of houses kind of thing. So there's always, when the government is involved, there's force involved. We know that the government uses, that's how it operates, it's political force, but you have to always limit exactly how much it can use that in society. And when you have, you know, this rise of the stuff that government provides, Inevitably, it's going to have to use its power and wield that force to dictate to people to provide those services and goods to others. And it's ill-equipped to do so because the the world of, of business and, and, and free enterprise is so complex. I mean, I think there's a tendency in business to, 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 to put business in silos of this is the construction industry, this is the mining industry, this is the communications industry. And they fail to take into account the huge numbers of ancillary businesses from other industries that contribute to achieving a particular result in a particular company. Right. Everything is interlinked and interconnected. I think a, a great example in this regard to think of is uh, in, was it in February or March when the, the ever given that massive ship blocked oh, the yes. Suez Canal? And mm -hmm. there you saw the, the sort of downstream effects of what happened in one place. I mean, given the importance of the Suez Canal. But you saw just the effect on value, on, 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 um, on value chains, on other businesses downstream. It's never a case of, as you say, like something happening in, in, in the construction industry. It's never going to affect things in other industries. Everything is interconnected. And I think uh, one person I would recommend looking up is uh, Friedrich Hayek, who did a lot of good work on just the hubris of central planners and the, the folly of trying to think that you can make decisions on behalf of, in South Africa's case, 55 million people. I mean, for, for some people, I'll speak on my own behalf. Some mornings I wake up and I can't even decide what I'm going to eat for lunch and I'm, you know, caught in this paralysis <laughs> of anxiety. But for a central planner to think that they can decide for 55 million people all of their daily decisions, I think, inevitably leads to all sorts of problems. Let's uh, skip back to Freedom Day specifically and 
perhaps I can give a little breakdown of Freedom Day as I experienced it. I think I think it was probably you were probably a bit too young to appreciate it at the time. Um, April the twenty seventh in nineteen ninety four. I do have a very cl- clear recollection of my husband and I standing in a queue waiting to vote at a local uh, primary school. I had my three year old on my shoulders, and as happens in South Africa, you stand in a line. It doesn't take long before people start talking to each other. It doesn't matter where they come from, what they look like, etc. Um, etc. Et and although one knew that it was probably, and it was a flawed election, and uh, it had been preceded by some very tough and, in some respects, nasty negotiations and accompanying violence, there really was a sense that here, so much had fundamentally changed that at that moment, in the in the moment of voting, getting into the, into the voting booth, it was a it was the one moment of absolute equality it didn't matter where you come from you had one vote and your vote counted as much as the next man's and there, there was something sort of profoundly moving in that and i've always felt that the the having the right to vote can never should never be squandered it's 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 a vote it's it's a right that's that's hard hard fought for and it's a right that so many people would like and you have an obligation to as a contribution to society to to, to exercise your vote. That, that's my very strong feeling about it. 27 years later, however, um, we have a country that is, to put it mildly, in the dregs. Um, in every respect, corruption, cadre deployment, uh, black economic appointment, uh, uh, empowerment linked to cadre deployment, um, a complete moral disintegration of the leadership of this country. From certainly from my point of view, and I'd be interested to have your view. It's it's the ultimate ultimate uh, disappointment. It's 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 actually dismaying to see to go from the the promise we had to the reality we now face. In some ways, one can say it just went from one sort of central planned government to another form of central planned government. I think. Uh, Dr. Anthea Jeffrey of the Institute of Race Relations has made this, I think, easily digestible and clear that the guiding ideology of the African National Congress is the National Democratic Revolution. And that entails that the party must control the levers of power of the state. So that's, for example, the state-owned enterprises, courts, um, the economy, of course. That's what we see through affirmative action policies. So... Yeah, you're exactly right to point out the the sadness of it all, and it it doesn't necessarily happen overnight. You know, the sort of slip sliding into tyranny doesn't just happen overnight. It happens gradually. We see different forms of it. We see moves now for expropriation without compensation. We see talk of prescribed assets. We see um, talk of why shouldn't there be a state bank? Um, we see the the sort of trying to formulate uh, national health insurance. All of this stuff further extends the control of the state. And I think it makes, to be honest, it makes a mockery of the sacrifices that South Africans made for generations to attain democracy, because to me, a robust democracy means that individual rights are sacrosanct and all these policies will undermine those hard-won gains, I think. One of the things that concerns me about the, the pursuit of the National Democratic Revolution is, if I can put it this way, the artificiality of the ideology that that supports, the socialist, the move to a socialist utopia. 
I mean, it's an, it, it, it really took hold of the ANC in the, in the, in the fifties, coalesced in the sixties. It, it's like pickled in aspic. It, it's something they've, they strive towards, even though they've seen the failures of the, of the Soviet Union, the Eastern European states. Cuba is a sad mess. Venezuela is probably worse. And yet they proceed a pace in, in the circumstances where they have not only sort of captured the state and stolen from it, but they have run it into the ground by virtue of all these factors. There is no sense that what they are proposing um, in becoming a, quote, capable state and running your life for you through this, in, in this socialist uh, march to, to utopia, that they can actually possibly think of being able to do it. Well, then you run into the, the counter argument, and I'll play devil's advocate, where they say, just give us a bit more power or a bit more money and things will will work. You know, the goalposts always shift, which is interesting because when they apply those goalposts to the private sector, for example, and say it hasn't transformed fast enough, then, you know, they, they use punitive measures. So it's interesting that they can always get away with <laughs> their own lofty standards and ideals, but they don't allow others to do that. I've been reading Tony Leon's new book, mm-hmm. Future Tense, and there was one point that stood out. It was a quote from someone else, and I'm going to paraphrase, but it's something along the lines of, South Africans have to choose. They can either choose the ANC in government or they can choose having a functional growing economy. So in many ways, it's sort of boiling down to that now. I'd like you to hang on, Chris. We're going to go to an ad break. And uh, then uh, there are just a couple of issues I'd like to chat to you about on this here Freedom Day. Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR Show. Independent, relevant, and real is hosted by Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty, and property rights. Welcome back to the IRR show and to my guest, Chris Hutton from the Free Market Foundation. Chris, I'd just like to chat about small business in particular, small, medium sized business. My my impression is that when the government talks about business, it really has in mind big business, um, the guys who can afford to cope with government uh, red tape and 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 similar co- uh, constrictions, shall I put it that way? But it doesn't really really take into account that the vast number of of businesses that make this country tick are small businesses. They may be. Um, a plumber who employs two or three people or an electrician who's training an apprentice in, in something or somebody who sets up a cake baking business and has people working for them who learn to, who learn to bake and produce stuff. And one of the problems here is that the, the small business sector doesn't really get a fair shake in terms of what should happen to it politically because big business is really looking after big business, and that's the business that's really getting uh, the ear of government. Right. Um, I think it's interesting how when you know when there's a new crisis, for example, so we had COVID-19 over the last year, then we hear about these grand social compacts and about the government convening these committees and they meet with big business sort of leagues and, and, and associations and that kind of thing, and then we're told, you know, government government sees the problems, we'll get structural reform, we'll move in the right direction, but ultimately very little happens. And as you rightly say, 
if anyone's going to get state assistance, it's going to be the big corporates. They simply have that sort of influence. So it's a case to me of, of rigging, rigging the game. Um, you know, we, we, with a lot of commentariat and academics, we get talk about growing inequality in the country. And I very much agree that where there are massive state barriers to entering an industry to competition, you will see growing inequality. You're not going to see real economic growth where each person and each business can grow their own sort of, can bake their own wealth cake, as it were. They only have to worry about a centrally, um, a centrally planned and centrally allocated cake that is shrinking by the year, as we know, tax revenues keep on declining and the number of taxpayers is also declining. So, uh, yeah, we have to be very careful of the mixing of state and politics. It's, I think it's an achievement of, of, of civilization, as it were, that the state for, for years was shrunk. And that's when we saw a lot of economic growth around the world. But we've seen a, a swing now in the opposite direction. And it's always, of course, under the guise of dealing with crises. So, Whenever a government starts talking about dealing with a virus as a form of war, I think you should be worried because then in their minds they can justify any sort of increase mm-hmm. of state power. That's how they've dealt with the COVID crisis. It's a state of disaster, which I suppose in, in other terms is almost a state of war, and mm-hmm. uh, they, they've, they've usurped a whole lot of powers for themselves. Um, I want to just end off by asking you a strange question. 2024 elections, what is your feeling about split in the ANC? Again, I'm going to, I won't throw it back to you in that way, but I wonder to what end, because the way I see it, there are way too many people within the governing party implicated in corruption matters and state capture related matters to think that if one faction quote unquote wins, then that necessarily be a good thing. Mm. Um, I, I don't know if one will see that sort of radical move within the party. Fundamentally, everyone within the party believes that the state should be in, in, in control mm. of the levers of power. Now, some of them might believe in that to a lesser extent. So in that regard, you might see some tinkering here and there and some small progress. Maybe they'll release some amount of spectrum, for example, for mobile data and that sort of thing, but not the kind of real reforms that you need. They won't, for example, close down SAA or allow actual competition in the electricity sector, which South Africa desperately needs to stave off load shedding. So, yeah, by, by that standard, I, I, I'm not that excited if it happens. I mean, <laughs> that, that again doesn't say it won't happen because we see a lot of uh, increasing rhetoric and violence within the party. So perhaps we will see it at some point. And again, the stakes are very high if you're in control of of the ruling party, you're in control of the state and for some people in control of society so you can ensure that you get a good paycheck for, for many years to come. So essentially the, what's, what's, what's likely to keep the glue that will hold the ANC together is are two things. One is a sort of uh, uh, antiquated ideology that has no bearing in the reality of, of the modern world and B is the fact that the only way they secure an income into the future is by hanging together over issues of state capture and and because once they're out, it's very dark out there. Yeah, you then you actually have to uh, <laughs> and then you have to find a job and create value. It's easy Ooh, to God, to quote kidding. unquote create value in, in politics. <laughs> I'd like to thank you very much for coming on on this uh, 
sort of sad freedom day and looking at some of our problems. But if we don't look at our problems, we can't find the solutions. And I hope we'll get you back on a, at a, on a day when uh, we'll look at a much more specific topic um, of which uh, you have uh, considerable, you have a, a fair amount of expertise or at least a very good opinion. So thank you very much for coming on and I uh, hope to see you, get you on again in future. Thank you very much, Sarah. I always enjoy talking to you.